the New Testament book of Romans, in chapter number 6, I'm going to tell you, uh, and I guess this would be true of everything that I preach, because every portion of the Word of God, I feel this way sometimes, uh, that I'm in over my head. But particularly the book of Romans. If you don't think the book of Romans is a deep book, you've never really studied the book of Romans. And the book of Romans deals with the inner life of the believer and certain ideals that are so splendid and so deep that the only way God could show it to Paul was to get him alone in the desert for about three years and just talk to him. And so tonight I'm going to do my best. Well, let me say, I'm not going to do anything if the Lord will help me to. I'm going to try to get out of the way and let him do what needs to be done. And hope that he can speak to your heart this evening. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1 of Romans chapter number 6. It begins with a question. And it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. I can't stress the magnitude of death in that statement. Verse 8 says, Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now notice verse 14, our text is found there. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. Let's read that once more. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, bless your word tonight. Lord, I know that me and of myself, there's nothing worthy of me for you to use me. There's nothing worthy of each and every person here for you to speak to our hearts, but we believe that you bless your word. We believe that you bless obedience. So I pray, Father, that you'd help us to be obedient to your word tonight and seek that double blessing of you speaking to hearts and showing us the truth from your word. Father, I pray that each and every heart would be touched. Lord, that you'd accomplish your will within us in a way that bring you glory and you alone glory. If there's any amongst us lost and undone, show them their need of Calvary. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Father, we love you. Teach us to love you more. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 
I'm interested again in verse number 14 and in a phrase that's used where the Word of God says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. If we were to study through Romans chapter 6 in its entirety, we would find that one word seems to have prevalence in this chapter over any other word, and it's the word sin. I was commenting to my wife and uh, telling her as I had studied this, I found that the word sin appears in Romans chapter 6 a whopping 17 times. And of those 17 times, 13 of those times, it is coupled with a word that gives it a characteristic or an ideal. And there's five separate words. You'll find in here where the Bible says, shall we continue in sin? And that speaks of our presence of sin or the presence of sin in our lives. It says in verse number 2, how shall we that are dead to sin? That speaks of the communication of sin. Now you say, what do you mean the communication of sin? I'm saying this, the spiritual man has no communication with sin. The carnal man, the natural man, he communicates with sin. But that spiritual side of us that has been quickened through Jesus Christ, that spiritual side is not tempted. That spiritual side takes no pleasure in sin. It's the old man, it's the flesh that takes pleasure in sin. And you'll find all through this chapter where it speaks of uh, dying unto sin and things being from sin. It speaks in uh, verse number 6 of the body of sin, speaking of the characteristics of sin. And all through you'll find this word sin. But as I read this chapter, I'm struck that this is very clearly a chapter of victory. Because it presents to us not just the idea of sin, but the idea of our victory over sin through the person of Jesus Christ. You see, it's all summed up in that little phrase in verse 14 where it says that sin shall not have dominion over you. You know, I began to think about that word dominion. That's a word we don't use real often in everyday language. We use the terminology domineering sometimes to characterize a person or a personality. But when you think about that word dominion, there's three things that immediately struck in my mind. And I want to give them to you just as a little introduction. When I think of the word dominion, I think first off of the word territory. You see, a king's dominion is his kingdom. It's a territory that is, uh, that is marked out, that is decidedly in the possession and in the influence of another individual. Can I say to you that you and I, when we were born, we were born in the dominion of sin. We didn't become sinners, we were born sinners. Do you understand? I know there's been famous preachers that have said, well, you know, we're sinners because we sin, but that's not true, friend. We sin because we're sinners. We're born sinners into this world. Even a little bitty child, when they're born, they may, they may be born with an innocent heart, but they're still born sinners. They may be born without understanding. They may be born without being able to comprehend their sin condition. But it doesn't change the fact that every single one of us, from the moment uh, that we're created, we are created as sinners. That sin nature is passed down to us from our Father. Now, some of you say, well, my dad wasn't a bad guy. No, look a little further back. I'm not talking about that Father. Now, yes, it came to you through that father, and women don't get excited because you got fathers too, amen? So you ain't no better than the rest of us. But the Bible says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, in that all have sin. Why do you think it is that Christ could not have an earthly father? 
Some of you say, well, he had an earthly mother. He didn't need, listen carefully to what I'm about to say, he didn't need an earthly mother to exist. He existed before he was ever incarnated. But he could have an earthly mother. Now, I'm not saying that God had a mother, but I'm saying that holy thing that is within you, as the angel said to Mary, that holy thing, that body did have an earthly mother. But he, his personality and his person was eternally preexistent. But he could not even have, his body could not even have an earthly father. The Bible says uh, that the Holy Ghost moved upon Mary and she conceived. He could not, his body could not have an earthly father. And by the way, if your Bible says uh, that Joseph was his father, you need to throw it away and get you another Bible. Because the Word of God never says that in a single place. In fact, there's only one time that Joseph has ever called his father, and that's by his mother, and she was out of the will of God when she called him his father because they were rebuking him for staying behind in the temple. And she said, oh, uh, how is it? She looked at him and said, your father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he says, how is it that you sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father with a big F, my father's business? You see, he couldn't have, his body couldn't have an earthly father because the sin nature is passed down through the Father. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death came upon all men. Uh, So uh, when the Bible speaks of him being dead unto sin, uh, well, I'm not going to get into that. Let me just go ahead and preach to you. I think of the dominion of sin. and We're all born into this world in the territory of sin. But I think of a second thing. I think of the word authority. You see, dominion carries with it the idea of authority, doesn't it? And really, when you speak of someone, you ever heard someone say this? Maybe they said it about you, maybe you said it about someone else. You've said, that person has a domineering personality. And what you mean by that is they speak with an authority. You may appreciate that authority, you may be offended by that authority, but that's what you mean by that. They have a domineering or a caustic uh, or an aggressive personality. And the word dominion denotes the idea of of authority. You see, a king's dominion is his dominion because he has dominion over his dominion. Are you with me? And do you understand that when we were born into this world, sin had an authority over us? Do you understand that a lost man has no capacity to do anything but that which is wrong? And some of you are saying, well, you know, I got, I got a lost friend or I got a lost family member and they're a good person. I'm not asking whether they're a good person. I'm asking whether they're righteous. Because, see, there's a difference between morality and spirituality. Morality is doing that which is in agreement with our own conscience and with the uh, accepted standards of society. But spirituality and righteousness is doing that which is right in the eyes of a holy God. And the lost man has no capacity to do that. You know why? Because of his motives. The only good and right and true motive to do something in is for the glory of God. You say, well, that's a little extreme. Well, the Bible says we're to do all things for the glory of God. That's to be our motivation. That's to be our driving force. But the lost man has no capacity to do that because the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. He's dead in his trespasses and sins. He doesn't have the capacity to do the right thing. So the only thing he has the capacity to do is the wrong thing. Sin has that authority over his life. Well, sometimes we get awful ill with society because society is so wicked. But do you understand that our lost world is just doing what a lost world does? 
They have no capacity to do anything. You say, how do we change that, preacher? We win people to Christ. That's the only way we change it. We, we can't vote righteousness into a nation. We can't legislate righteousness into a nation. And if we're going to fix this country, it won't be from the White House. I think that's pretty evident. It's going to have to be from the church house. So I think of the word authority. But then I think of a third word that stuck in my mind, and it's the word mastery. You see, the difference between authority and mastery is the practicality of the matter. I may look at you and say, I have an authority over you. You may recognize that authority, and that authority is valid. But if you disregard that authority, the only way I can prove to you that I have that authority is by gaining the mastery over you. You say, what is the mastery? It's the upper hand. It's the strength. It's the force. And when I think of the word dominion, I think of this idea of mastery. Somebody that can make you do something. One thing I've learned in life is you can't make anyone do anything. Because there are two masters in this world. You remember what Christ said? You cannot serve God and what? Mammon. Those are the two masters. Some of you are saying, well, I thought devil, uh, that the devil was the master. No, the devil's not a master. He's a manipulator. He's not even, listen, and I know the world teaches us uh, that he, you know, he's got a throne in hell that he sits on and he overlooks everything. That ain't nothing but comic book theology. The Bible says he's the prince, the power of the air. And uh, the Bible says hell was created for him and his angels. He's not the master of hell because the only master of hell is the God that created it that has the authority uh, to pronounce judgment upon men and to send them to hell. The devil's not the master over hell, but the flesh, sin, that is a master. You know, you'll find real quick that a lost man, as I already said, he can't do what's right. But you can sit and you can try to pound it in his head. You can try to convince him. You can try to beg him. But there will always be a master that will win out over you, and that's his own flesh. Why do you think the mantra of the world today is, if it feels good, do it? That's their master. You know what they're really saying? Listen to your master. Their master is their flesh. And yet, as I read in this passage, I find that for the believer, the Bible says that these three things, territory, authority, and mastery, that these things, sin can't have them in our lives. Now, I'm very, very conscious, and I already told you, I'm just going to try to get out of the way and let the Lord do His preaching. But I, I want to go ahead and tell you that I'm very consciously aware that there are two ideals or two doctrinal sides to what is taught in this passage. There is that which is positional and there is that which is practical. You see, there are some things that have spiritually occurred, and Paul sits them before our eyes. And there are some things that are practically upon us to exercise. And it's our choice whether those things are reality or not. And Paul begins, and I want to start in verse number 6, and I just want to walk you through it. I may not even get preaching, I don't know. But look what it says in verse number 6. The Bible begins with this word knowing. You'll find the word know twice in Romans 6, and the word knowing twice in Romans 6. Now that's important, because it does not say feeling this, that our old man is crucified with him. It says knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Uh, Paul says a word about the truth of our past. Now, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, because if there's somebody lost in here tonight, uh, then I want them to respond during the invitation time, uh, and I don't want them putting out, uh, feeling like they got embarrassed in the church service. But let me say this. 
Most of us would say tonight that we've been saved by the grace of God. I know that's my testimony. I know most everybody in here, if not everybody in here, would say that very thing. I have been saved by the grace of God. Do you understand that when you got saved, there's a lot of remarkable and miraculous things that took place. And Paul begins with this truth. He says, knowing that our old man is crucified with Christ. Now, I'm going to make a theological statement here, so don't get nervous, amen? But can I say that what Paul is speaking of here is not allegory. It is spiritual and supernatural. Now, you say, why is that important? Because Paul is not just telling us a parable to illustrate a truth but he's giving us the truth of some things that have happened in a spiritual realm and in a spiritual way that are not just an allegory but a reality in our lives. And he begins in this passage with the reality of our death. He says, if you've been saved, your old man... Now, what is the old man? Let's define him. The Bible teaches us that the old man is the flesh. It's that part of us that is contrary to God. It's that part of us when it's time to get up on Sunday morning that says sleep a little longer. It's that part of us that when the choice is given to be honest or to tell a lie, we'd like to tell a white lie. It's that part of us that if somebody walks across the street not dressed the white way, there's a part of us that says you need to keep your eyes to yourself, but then there's a part of us that says, no, go ahead and look. It's that part of us when something happens uh, that gets us mad or gets us upset. There is a part of us that says, just be a Christian about it. But then there's another part, and it's the old man, and he says, no, let him have it. That's the flesh. It's that part that's contrary to God. It's that part uh, that does not respond to God. It's that part that is an enemy of God. That's the old man. And Paul says this about the old man, that our old man is crucified with Christ. Now, I told you, I don't know how deep I'm going to be able to go in this, because we're going to get real deep if I try to sound the depths. But do you understand that when Christ died on Calvary, He took your sin, He became it, and He bore it, and He paid for it, and He stole from sin the authority that sin had. Every one of us born into this world... We had a responsibility as lost individuals to do what sin would have us to do. Because we were sinners, we had submitted ourselves to sin's authority. That's why everybody born into this world is born to die. Because the wages of sin is death. You say, how universal is sin, preacher? As universal as death is. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But because of what Christ did on Calvary, we can be freed from that authority that sin has in our life. And we can choose to do the right thing because we have been quickened or resurrected With Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are saying, Preacher, wait a minute. I don't always feel like my old man has been crucified. No, I get that. I'm right with you. But let me ask you something. You ever woke up in the morning? You ever had one of them nights where, you know, the dog was barking or or maybe your spouse, I don't know, and, and, you know, you just tossed and you turned and you rolled uh, and, you you know, you rolled out of bed, you uh, uh, went to the bathroom, missed the toilet, you know. I mean, you just had one of them nights and you roll over when the alarm goes off And you say, boy, it sure don't feel like 6 o'clock. It don't feel like 7 o'clock. Well, it don't matter how you feel, and your employer will let you know that in a heartbeat. You ever felt before? We're coming up. When's time change? We've got a little bit of time, don't we? we got It's what, November, something like that? But it never fails. 
It never fails when time change rolls around. You can see it on people's faces. Uh, when, when we, you know, when we gain an hour, whichever one gives us more sleep, people come in. I mean, they're doing jumping jacks. Uh, they're rolling down the center aisle of the church. They're shaking hands. They're patting people on the back. And then the other time change rolls around. <laughs> And uh, nobody's here on Sunday morning, but Sunday night after they've woke up and they come in, you can see it, and they just look like they're in a fog and a daze. And they know what time it is, but it don't feel like that time. Let me tell you something. Your feelings do not dictate reality. There's times you don't feel like it, but that don't do a thing to change the reality of things. Can I tell you something? If you're trusting in your feelings to get you to heaven, you'll never get to heaven. We don't trust in our feelings to get us to heaven. We trust in the finished work of Christ on Calvary. And can I tell you something? Every Christian, if they were to be honest, there's been at least a time or two, if not thousands of times or two, where they've woke up and they haven't felt saved. Aren't you thankful your salvation's not dependent on how you feel? Aren't you thankful that your salvation's not based upon whether you feel good or not? Uh, there'd be days I'd wake up and I'd be lost because I don't feel like it. There'd be days I'd be in traffic. Somebody'd cut me off. I'd lose my salvation because I wouldn't feel like it. I'm saying that just because we don't feel like it, that doesn't change the reality of what happened on Calvary. Now, I'm not saying there's not a practical uh, import that we have to discuss. I'm not saying, and Paul's going to discuss that in a second, but he begins with the reality of our death. Then notice what it says in verse number 6 at the end of it. He says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that. Now, that word that tells us that we're going to have a purpose attributed to this crucifixion of the old man. And notice the results of our death. He says two things. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Why was it that Christ became flesh for you and I? Why was it that he also not only became flesh, but on Calvary, he became our sin? He did so so that there would be a capacity in which we would live, separated from the natural man, a resurrected life and a quickened life. Do you understand that this body of sin will be destroyed one day? There's going to come a day, and now some of you are saying, well, I thought it was going to be changed. Well, that's how he's going to destroy it. This vile body shall be made like unto his glorious body. Paul said, this corruptible shall put on incorruption. This mortal shall put on immortality. We sing all the time, well, I'll have a new body, I'll have a new... No, you won't have a new body. You'll have a changed body. That's bad luck for some of us with the way we look, amen? But, but I'm being scriptural now. This body can be destroyed and changed because of what Christ did on Calvary. But there's a second reason that we should not henceforth serve sin. You understand that when Christ died upon Calvary and quickened you, and we'll talk about being in Him here in a moment, but not only were we baptized into His death, by the way, that tells me that there is a spiritual baptism. Now, I'm not talking about speaking in tongues now. I'm not talking about uh, some kind of gift of prophecy. I'm not talking about a holy dance. I'm talking about the exercise by which we are placed into the body of Christ. We are baptized by one spirit into His body, as the book of 1 Corinthians says. 
And this baptism is not solely a, or it is not a water baptism. This is a separate baptism from the water baptism uh, that the Bible does prescribe for us to take part in, in obedience after we've been saved, uh, in obedience to Jesus Christ. But this is a spiritual baptism. You say, how do you know that? Because me as a preacher, I don't have the capacity to baptize you into his death. If I did, I would have the capacity to save you of my own strength and ability. No, this is a different baptism. This is a spiritual baptism that he's talking about. And he says that you've been baptized into his death, and also, likewise, you'll be resurrected with him. Now we have the capacity, through an awakened soul, through a new birth, through a new life, to communicate with God and to be obedient to him and to do the right thing. You say, what's the purpose that we might not serve sin? We see the results, but I want you to notice the revolution of our death. Look what it says in verse 7. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, like I already said, I'm not going to have time to unpack all this. Boy, I wish I did. Because you understand it talks about in Romans chapter 7 how that a woman is under subjection to her husband as long as he liveth. But when her husband dies, then she is at liberty to marry another. Now, I believe that the Word of God has a lot to say about marriage and about what we ought to do with marriage and in marriage. But can I say that that's not given for the benefit of matrimonial circumstances. That's given to teach us the truth that when we were born under sin, we were born under the law. You know, the Bible says that the law is given for those that are lawless. Those that are sinners was the reason that the law is given. Every time we have a new law, and I'm not, listen, I'm not pro-government. I'm not anti-government either. But I'm not for all the government we can have and get. And I'm not for every silly law that comes across. But every time there's a new law passed, there's always a certain group that gets upset about it. And it's like my old preacher used to say, you take a rock, toss it into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one that got hit. Uh, If you're abiding by the law anyway, it's not going to upset you too bad. You know, they're starting to do that slowpoke law in Tennessee. Finally a law I can get on board with, amen? Police telling me to drive faster. I can do that. I can be a good citizen. But when we have a law, it only applies to those that are breaking the law. It's only going to affect them, you understand. And when you were in sin and you were lawless by your nature, a law had to be given to show you how lawless you were and to show you your need of Christ. But you see, after sin has been dealt with, after that death has been died, we no longer are under the law anymore. That husband has no authority over us. We've been married to a new husband. You say, who is that new husband? What says it in chapter number 7? Him that was raised from the dead. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. We have a new master now. So we see that when a person is dead, they're freed from sin. Let me give you a very practical uh, application of this. Uh, there's a lot of things, I, you know, I've done quite a few funerals, uh, but I've, I've never known of a, uh, of a man to get drunk at his own funeral, have you? I've never known a man to take a cussing fit at his own funeral, have you? I've never known a dead man to be a lawbreaker, have you? You see, a dead man doesn't have the capacity to do wrong. He's dead. And your old man, if he's been crucified with Jesus Christ, and if you'll crucify him daily, that'll put a stop to the sin in your life. I'm not saying you'll be perfect, but I'm saying that sin can't have dominion over you as long as you reckon your old man dead. You can insult a dead man all you want. He won't get upset. You can flatter him all you try, and it won't puff him up one bit. He's dead, and so he's freed from sin. 
So we see a truth about our past. But I want you to notice not only that. Look at verse 8. I see a truth about our position. Look what it says in verse number 8. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Paul says something about our placement in Christ. Now, I'm going to give you some deep truths. Hang with me. We all know what it says in the Word of God. Therefore, if any man be what? In Christ. Now, what does that mean to be in Christ? Well, let's just put it as simply as I can. Right now, I'm in this building. A few moments ago, I was in my car. My car, while I was in my car, I couldn't go anywhere without my car. My car couldn't go anywhere without me, except we'd be separated from each other. If my car was going through the rain, I was going through the rain with it. If my car was going through the sunshine, I was going through the sunshine with it. I was in my car. You say, preacher, that's overly simple. Well, now let me give you this. As the believer, when we've put our faith in Christ, then when he died once unto sin, we died once unto sin. When he was buried, when his body was buried, our old man, his body was buried. When Christ was raised in power and in glory, you and I, we were raised in power and in glory. Why do you think it is that Christ speaks over and over again about us being in Him and Him being in the Father? Why is it that the Bible says we're seated together in heavenly places in, not with, in Christ Jesus? We are in Him. I'm thankful when God sees me. Oh, I'm on, you're going to get mad at me. You're going to carry me out on a pole, but hear me out. I'm thankful that when God sees me, He doesn't just see the blood. He sees His Son. You say, what's the difference? Well, I'll tell you the difference. The difference is the difference between redemption and justification. You see, redemption means the price has been paid. Redemption means we've been forgiven. Redemption means our debt has been settled. You understand that you can pay a debt and you can turn around and go right back into debt. You understand that, right? I'll be honest, you do understand that. I know you live in this world like I do. You understand that you pay your house off tomorrow, turn around, go right back into debt buying a bigger one. And you understand that if all God had done was forgiven us, hey, that'd be blissful, that'd be blessed, but we'd turn around and need forgiveness again tomorrow for the things that we've done wrong. But you see, we've been justified. That literally means that God has robed us in the righteousness of Christ, placed us in the family of God, accepted us in the Beloved, and we are joint heirs with Christ. When God sees us, He sees His Son. And there's one thing that's for sure. You and I, we may do wrong, we may sin, we may mess up. But Jesus Christ, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Him was no sin. He did no sin. He knew no sin. He he was always sinless, friend. He's always going to be sinless. Uh, If I'm in Him, then I'm secure in being in Him. Paul says, when He died, you died with Him. Uh, This, oh man, I I wish we'd go deeper. I don't even know how. I ain't got a shovel big enough to dig deeper than where we're at right now. I mean, listen, whenever Christ died on Calvary, He took those handwriting of ordinances that were against us, that were contrary to us. Book Colossians says He took them out of the way, nailing them to His cross. Well, what did He nail to the cross? He nailed a perfect fulfillment of the law to the cross. He was the perfect fulfillment of the law. But not only did He do that, He nailed our old man to the cross along with Him. And He said, I am paying for the sins of Toby Weber. 
I'm paying for the sins of put your name right there. We've been crucified with Him. So we see a truth about our position or our placement in Christ. I want you to notice not only our placement, but notice that we see a truth about our pattern in Christ. Verse number 9 says, Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Oh, that upsets the Roman Catholics. You know, every picture they got of Jesus, He's on the cross still. I'm thankful Jesus isn't still on the cross. He already paid for sins. He was delivered up once for our justification. He'll not be crucified again. He did it right the first time. There's no need for Him to be crucified again. It says, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over Him. You see, that battle's already been won. You listening to me? The book of Acts chapter 2 says of death, and of Jesus Christ, that he was not able to be holden of it. That battle's been fought. It's been decided, friend. There'll be no rematch. He's conquered death. And he is our pattern. You see, he died once to die no more. He became sin once to become sin no more. You and I, we've faced our sin sickness. We've faced our old man once. We're going to see here in a moment how we ought to reckon that as being enough and being put to death. He is our pattern because death has no more dominion over him. How does death have no more dominion? Well, the sting of uh, sin is death. Uh, that, that sting has been took away. He paid the debt. He won the battle. He is our pattern. We understand when we look at Jesus Christ that Calvary was the finality of the matter. And you remember, what's the question Paul is asking? Shall we continue in sin? He's not saying, are we ever going to sin? He's saying, should we have the attitude that we might as well sin? And Paul's saying, no, we shouldn't have that attitude because look at Jesus. Jesus died for our sins once. Once was enough. He died to die no more and death has no dominion over him. That ought to be our mentality. He's our pattern. But I want you to notice not only our pattern in Christ, but notice our, notice our parent in Christ. Look at verse 10. It says, For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth what? Unto God. See, God didn't save you to sin. God saved you to be sanctified and to serve. I think these people that look at salvation as their ticket to heaven, I worry that somebody give them a counterfeit ticket. I worry that they really don't have an idea about what the whole thing's about. And I'm not saying, I'm not preaching a lordship salvation. I'm not saying that we never sin, that we never backslide, that we never do wrong. But I am saying this. I'm saying that when we get saved, it does change our lives. It does change our lives. If any man be what? In Christ, he is a new creature. Well, what if they're not a new creature, preacher? Well, I just worry that they're not in Christ. Isn't that right? I know you're tired. Hang with me. I told him this morning, I said, the reason you never think I preach anything sweet is you only stick with me for the first hour and a half, you know. We get to the second hour and a half, and it's all milk and honey. We see not only our parent in Christ. I'll hurry. Look what it says in verse 11. The Bible says, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lusts. Thereof, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of, unri or of righteousness unto God. We see a truth about our potential. This is where the practicality of the matter really takes wings. I understand that we don't always live like our old man is crucified. But you know, the old man's a funny thing. He is dead, and he should be dead. 
But he still tries to get up every single day. Why was it Paul said, I die daily? Now, I understand Paul was, in a sense, talking about his persecutions. But Paul wouldn't have endured his persecutions except he was willing to persecute his own flesh. Except he was willing to put his flesh down, to beat his body down and bring it under subjection, as he said. And understand that when it says that sin shall not have dominion uh, over you anymore, that is a theological truth, but there is a practical responsibility upon us as well. What's the potential? I want you to notice that he speaks of a reckoning, verse number 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That word reckon is an accounting word. To reconcile something, to reckon an account. Uh, some of not wrecking an account, amen, but reckon an account. Uh, some of you, uh, you uh, take your checkbooks and you, have, you do what we call balance them. And that means that you go through and you find out where every cent has been spent. You want to understand the reality of the situation and treat it accordingly. You're reckoning that checkbook. Well, the same truth applies to us as believers. We're to take what God has told us and we're to make that a reality in our lives. We are to look at it the same way God looks at it. And God, when He looks at us, He looks at us and sees that our old man has been crucified. We ought to look at it the same way. Let me tell you something. Until we are broken over our sin, we will never be broken from our sin. Until we hate our flesh, we will never get victory over our flesh. I'm not saying we're going to be sinless, but I'm saying we're going to continue to be sinful until we get to the place that we hate sin the way God hates it. Why was it that God used Elijah? Was Elijah some kind of superhero? No, the book of James says he was a man of like passions, uh, like as we are. Why did God use Elijah? Because Elijah hated sin the way God hated sin. It made him sick to see the sin of the nation of Israel. We've got to get to the place where we see sin as an ugly thing. We've got to get to the place where we look at our flesh and say, You don't have the authority over me anymore. What do you think fasting is all about? Oh, I know. Now, we're talking about something don't none of us like to talk about now. That's real evident. Amen. But I'm being honest. Fasting isn't about proving a point to God. God knows our heart already. Fasting isn't about seeming super spiritual to everybody around. In fact, the Bible exhorts us when we fast uh, to not allow ourselves to look in pitiful shape and to go around poor mouth and, oh, I'm so pitiful and I'm so, uh, I'm so hungry and I'm so weak because I'm fasting. You do that and that doesn't do a thing. You know why? Because you know what fasting is really about? Fasting is about bringing your flesh unto subjection. It's about showing yourself that your flesh does not run you. That's why that it's of no use whenever we go around poor mouthing and bragging about the way that we've been fasting because we're just indulging our flesh in a different way than a Whopper or a Big Mac does. That's what fasting is all about. It's about us reckoning our old man to be dead and saying, I'm not going to live that way because I'm not supposed to live that way because that old man is dead. And that's what God's told me, so I'm going to live that way. We see a reckoning, but notice what it says in verse number 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Now notice the use of this word in verse 13. Neither yield. Yield. We know what yield means. Well, I don't know. The way people drive around here, I don't think they do know what the word yield means. But yield means to slow down 
and to give the passage to something else. Yield means to let go, to give in. Do you understand that? I know we sometimes think we have to hold out to do the right thing. But the whole reason we think that way is because how carnal we are. If we look at it as a spiritual battle where the old man is trying to get us to do one thing and the spiritual man's trying to get us to do another thing, and it's just a question of who we're going to yield to, it'd help us win a lot more battles. You see, understand that all you have to do, and this is what's wrong with modern-day Christianity. Can I say it? This is what's wrong with modern-day Christianity. Liberal and conservative, uh, modern and fundamental. This is the problem across the board, is there's no yielding to the Holy Spirit of God. Yielding to His guidance and direction, His authority and His power, and will never know the power of God till we yield our own power to Him. Paul says you've got to yield your members, to forfeit them, to give them over, to give them up, to say, all right, Lord, you want them? I'll wave the white flag. They're yours. And finally, I'll close with this. Verse 14, our text. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. He speaks of a releasing. He speaks of a liberty. He speaks of us breaking the shackles and yoke that sin has held over us since the day we entered this sin-sick world. Now again, I'm not talking about the eradication of the flesh. That's not going to happen until our vile body is changed and made like unto His glorious body. But I'm saying this, there's a far distance between the carnality that the modern church lives in and the eradication of the flesh uh, that the modern holiness movement preaches to. There's a far cry betwixt the two. And can I say to you that where the theological reality falls is right split in the middle of it? Uh, The fact that uh, though we're never going to eradicate our flesh through our own means and strength, Jesus will do that when He changes us. Uh, When we are uh, like Him, the book of 1 John chapter 3 says, for we shall see Him as He is. When He does that, that's when that's going to happen. But that don't mean that, well, what does Paul say? What? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The liberty comes from releasing and relinquishing ourselves to the Holy Spirit of God. And by the way, just because you're yielding, that doesn't mean it's easy. When somebody with, a, with more authority comes along to you and tells you something to do, is it easy to yield to them? No. But you still have to yield. I'm not saying it's easy to do this. But I'm saying either way, whether it's yielding to the flesh or yielding in faith to the Holy Spirit, it's yielding either way. And there's a liberty that comes with it that can't be described by human tongue. God's got to describe it to us. You want victory in your life? Yield to the Holy Spirit. You want liberty in your life? Yield to the Holy Spirit. You want the power of God in your life? You want satisfaction? Yield to the Holy Spirit and allow Him to do in you what you can't do in and of yourself.